electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Ray Dalio, founder of the world's largest hedge fund on the coronavirus economic shutdown. What we have is is a crisis. We estimate right now that corporate losses would be in the vicinity of about $4 trillion. Restaurants around the country have gone dark. One entrepreneur on the pandemic's impact to his industry. By Friday, our total of 4,500 associates, as we call them, We'll be down to six. 17 days ago, I thought our business was in great shape and doing great. And today, uh, it's closed. Those stories and more. It's Thursday, March 19th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, kill please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Wall Street has been on a roller coaster ride amid the coronavirus turmoil. A few highlights. The S&P 500 has swung 4% or more in either direction for eight consecutive sessions. The spread of the virus, especially in New York, has led the New York Stock Exchange to temporarily close its historic trading floor as of Monday and move fully to electronic trading. Last night, the European Central Bank announced a new pandemic emergency purchase program that will deploy the equivalent of about $820 billion across Europe. The U.S. Senate had enough votes yesterday to pass a bill expanding leave and unemployment benefits to avoid a downturn. Now, the White House is weighing a fiscal package of more than $1 trillion. That includes direct payments to Americans and financial relief to small businesses as well as the airline industry. Here's Joe Kernan. Walmart. New highs. I mean, close to all-time highs. I know why. I, I know Makes all sense. of that. But no. if Walmart lives, I think I'm going to live. So I just, you know, I, I, I just. <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to hang my hat on Amazon. I, I know, I know like Andrew, you'll find, you'll find a negative for Walmart. But at least, I mean, Walmart is, you know. All, but it, you, saw, you saw Amazon hiring like 10,000 more people. Right, right. You know, People are still and, shopping. And also the yield, ways to Becky, do I'm not going to let the, I, I saw we wrote an article. Higher yields mean trouble yeah. for the. It's like we write lower yields mean That's trouble. Higher yields mean trouble. I'll, I'll take it. And, it de- <laughs> it, it. and even though oils, oils up 13 percent. I was That's like, like okay. some stability at this point. <laughs> you know, 22 oil up 13 percent. Yes. I love yeah. you, but I, 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 oh, taking, I know. I'm I know. The other side of this. I'm taking the other side of this. And it's in part because, look, uh, if you look at the if you look at the job losses that are, that are literally happening in real time every day, Putting aside the Amazon numbers, which are nice, and the, the Walmart numbers, which are nice, I can't tell you how many business owners and CEOs I spoke with yesterday that literally were either in the process of laying off people like no while I was on the telephone um, or are planning to do so today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. So the idea that you can look at Walmart and everybody has to use Walmart right now, everybody has to use Amazon right now, but 50 percent of this country is based on small businesses. And if I I sound upset or or, uh, um, panicked about it, it's because I am. Because I'm talking to too many people right now who are talking about job losses that are so far beyond what we have been talking about 
you can see it in the claims numbers. We're seeing it already. You're seeing it in the claims numbers. So there's no doubt that all this is going to be near term. We also have a restaurant owner who's laid off his 4,000 employees the other day. We're looking at this from all sides. Nobody wants wants great retail sales because people are hoarding for the apocalypse. All right. So that's not, uh, you know, you don't even know what's on the other. And I I understand that. That's all that's all implicit in what we're saying. But just saying every morning we have this conversation and I know everybody's looking for a bottom. But I think that you have to look at where we are in terms of what the unemployment rate is going to look like. And I know the market right now puts us back three years. If you think that the market is supposed to project what's the world look like 12 months uh, later, the question is, do you think that the world is going to look like it did in 2018? That's the question. Um, I, think it's I, I hope so. I, I, I don't think that. it's I don't yeah. think it's going to look necessarily like like Ackman. And, and when I see and I don't know what his positions are. I don't know anything about what's going on. I know J.C. Penney's still probably not a great place to be. But, you know, it's good to see just maximum despair. I don't, and it can get a lot worse. But we'll see whether we ever look back on any watershed moment. Assuming that we do come out of this someday, we'll see whether there was any moment that, that just seemed to... A lot of technicals yesterday were as bad as they've ever been in, in history on, on the S&P. So... And there's a lot to be worried about. There is. Shares of airplane maker Boeing have plunged, losing about 70% of their value over the past month, even amid talks of a government bailout. The question is, will that bailout go through? If and when it does, $60 billion will not only go to Boeing, but will go to a number of its suppliers. Let's get back to Andrew. For more on what Boeing and other CEOs can do during this uncertain time, I want to bring in Rich Lester, president and CEO of the Boston Consulting Group. He's been spending a lot of time on the telephone and on Zoom calls uh, with CEOs around the country. Rich, before we even get into it, what are you hearing from them? I think everybody's feeling this is an unprecedented situation, and the level of urgency um, is extraordinarily high. The first urgency, of course, was take care of your people and a huge amount of focus on, on how to think about getting, making the calls on whether to work remotely, how to handle travel, and so forth. Uh, now there's a huge amount of focus on business resilience, uh, uh, and and how to make this sustainable, uh, protecting the balance sheet. Uh, we just talked about one of those situations, and I think uh, people are still doing that. If, if you go further down the road, if you look at China right now, which is at the beginning of a rebound, you, we see companies that are starting to get a bit ahead of that and say, how do we come back to life as fast as possible? How do we th- rethink our model in this context? But I think we're a few steps uh, away from that. We can talk about rethinking the model in a second, but... Talk to us just a little bit about uh, the employment situation and how the CEOs that you're talking to are thinking about that, whether to keep people on their payrolls, whether to let them go or not. I spent, as I was saying earlier in the show, I had too many phone calls with CEOs yesterday who were literally laying off, laying off and making plans to lay off people literally while I was on the line. I think the reality is right now when you see massive revenue drop-offs in many industries, they're going to be left with, with no choice in some. I think others will fight to preserve their teams and, and try to do this in ways that are uh, trying to, to understand the pain that they're causing their employees, want to be able to rebound, but staring in the face of an unknown length of time. Well, that that's what I was going to ask. When you, guys talk, when, you talk to, when you talk to these executives about the time period, if this were to be something that goes on for, let's call it optimistically two months and maybe pessimistically 
well, longer, but let's say, let's, let's say this is a two- to three-month period. From an economic perspective, for most of these companies, if you were purely playing it by the numbers, forget about the morality of any of this, forget about uh, people's feelings, would it be cheaper or more expensive to keep these people on the payroll if you ultimately think that you're going to have to uh, hire many of them back? I think it really depends sector by sector and how deep the drop-offs are. In some sectors, it's a huge percentage of labor costs, massive revenue going away. They'll probably try to take some short-term actions, but stay close to people and let them know that as soon as things bounce back, they're going to bring them back. In other sectors, I think people will try to to hang on to their teams and, and be very supportive of them. That certainly are well, we're in a different place than many others. I don't want to compare, but I, I think that... When you say you're in a different place than many others, what do you mean? I mean, we have... Our client base is strong, and we're helping a lot of clients to try to navigate this crisis. So I, I think you know, we're very committed to our team and to, to helping them uh, to come through this and work through it together. But, but I, I do think in industries, you, you've got enormous pressures, and two months is probably manageable. The problem right now is we don't know how long it is. I just wrote an article in uh, Fortune this morning about the, the we need to start focusing on how we're going to keep this to two to three months of this extreme social distancing and, get, and, and figure out how to get people back to work and back to school. And I hear a lot of focus on the financial repercussions and what we need to do there, which of course is real, and what the actions are in the immediate term. But, but there's, there's a hey, set Rich? of moves to do that. Rich, I, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry, you, you said we need to focus on getting everybody back in the next two to three months. I'm not sure any health expert is convinced that that's where we're going to be or that you don't see a resurgence in cases once that happens. I think those are the big questions right now. That's, that's exactly um, and, the challenge. And, and, I, 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 I guess there's a huge economic price, and, I, and, and we watched it with China. It felt like there was a point where they said, okay, no mas, this is enough. We can't take any more of the economic pain. And I just wonder if we're going to be facing some of those same questions here. But I think it's a different, yes, I think that's right, Becky. But I would also add to that, it's not, it's not just about making a decision no more. It's about what do, you, what do you put in place over the next 60 to 90 days in terms of risk stratification, in terms of much more aggressive testing, in terms of new operating models in offices, in schools to take temperatures, to provide digital tools to be able to track uh, people who may be at risk. I mean, there's a whole set of moves that are essential to being able to have some confidence you can send people back to work and not just get back on the Rich, curve. are you working with companies to do that? Obviously, you, you see what's taking place in South Korea. It's remarkable in terms of the fact that as workers, depending on the size of the company, they're taking your temperature on the way in. Uh, in Israel, they're tracking uh, people using their cell phone. Um, you know, there might be civil liberty questions in the United States about doing that, but to see if you've been in contact or in the vicinity of somebody else who has tested positive, what kind of technology, you guys do a lot of consulting around technology, are you doing with companies on this issue? I think that's exactly the question that people are starting to turn to. And to be honest, things have broken so fast over the last couple of weeks that, that, um, that up till now that hasn't been the focus. But the ramp on that more is extraordinary. More. They, they, the ramp, they, they, the ramp they, to do that, to get, to get the, the equipment, to get the technology in place. You know, you look at some of the, the malls in South Korea, people walking in, getting before they get on the escalator, there's literally the security people are standing there with their thermometers to put up to everybody's head. Do you know of American companies that are even, even gearing up for that properly yet? I think American companies are starting to think that way, but I haven't seen them gearing up to do that yet. Right now, we're in the deep social distancing phase. 
uh, but that's exactly where it needs to go. And we need and we need government leadership too, government leadership to help make sure the technologies are available, to help uh, set the ground rules, as you say, around the trade-offs with privacy concerns, the ability to to uh, require people to stay home if they're at risk. Uh, so we, we'll need work between government and business. But this is where business is going to need to turn and government very fast because a year of this, it's hard to see how the economy uh, manages through a year of this. Uh, a few months of this will be incredibly expensive, as you were talking earlier on your show, but you get far beyond that. It's, it, it really becomes an enormous, enormous cost, and this is the next step in the journey. Okay, Rich Lesser, I appreciate you calling in this morning. Thanks so very much. Next on Squawk Pod. What's happening has not happened in our lifetimes. Ray Dalio, founder of the world's largest hedge fund. He's a legendarily famous investor, and the crisis is making him rethink his strategy. So the question that all investors have to ask themselves is where is faith? What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Three, two, one, two, Joe. Good morning. I'm Joe Kernan, um, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Our next guest, Ray Dalio. A quick refresher. He's widely respected on Wall Street and beyond as an investing visionary. Dalio started his firm, Bridgewater Associates, out of his two-bedroom apartment in New York. So he's just like us, probably familiar with this whole work-from-home moment that we're having. Unlike the rest of us, though, he built that into the largest hedge fund in the world, servicing central banks and sovereign wealth funds, among others. Dalio is also famous for his policy of radical transparency. He wrote an entire book on the philosophy called Principles, which you might have heard of or even read. P. Diddy certainly did. Lately, Dalio has been making big bets against the market. In the last few weeks, he bet against stocks across Europe. Reuters reports that those wagers amount to around $15 billion. Now, we can't be sure what these short positions mean for Bridgewater's overall strategy, but it's worth mentioning that Dalio made similar moves in the last market downturn in 2018. Ray Dalio joined us today to discuss current market risk, the potential exponential economic losses, what businesses will live or die as we all navigate this new normal. Here's Andrew kicking it off. We are joined on the telephone this morning by hedge fund manager Ray Dalio, chairman and founder of Bridgewater Associates. Ray has spent uh, an awful amount of time over the years uh, studying the world of crises, written a book about it, um, called the 2008 crisis uh, right. Uh, This one, though, has been different. Ray, uh, what are you thinking this morning? Well, what I'd like to do is uh, put it in the context of, uh, you know, what's happening. What's happening has not happened in our lifetimes before. And so I would like to give uh, a template, try to reiterate um, how the machine works, and then bring it to today. So uh, I just want to take a moment and say, uh, just from the big picture, there's uh, productivity. You know, over a period of time, we invent, we learn more, we do learn how to do things better, and our living standards rise. And then... uh, uh, there were two big cycles around that. 
There's a short-term death cycle, which is the usual business cycle uh, that, you know, goes on eight or ten years. And then there's the long-term death cycle that comes along one once in everybody's lifetime. Um, you know, it goes back to... Um, you know, the Bible talked about every 50 years and so on, debt restructuring. And you and I uh, have talked about this many times on the phone, that, um, and then, which is that um, we have a situation in which the combination of a large wealth gap and the proximity of interest rates to zero, meaning a less effective monetary policy, and a large amount of debt outstanding is a formula that is very similar to the 1930s because there's a lot of debt and the capacity of monetary policy is limited. And now we're seeing that play out. So now let's bring us right into today. And what we have is is a crisis. It's not caused by an, the usual things. But in reading history, um, in many, many cases, there have been uh, pandemics. I won't go into all those cases now, but I want to emphasize that we're in an economic downturn, uh, a crisis that um, is has a health part of it, has an economic part of it, has a monetary part of it, and we're hitting zero interest rates. So what you're seeing right now, very classic, is the inability of central banks to stimulate monetary policy in the way that is normal. In other words, in a, in a regular cycle, they push the button and they stimulate and give people credit. And people with money and credit, they go out and spend more and they pick up the economy. But the capacity to do that when you hit the zero interest rate floor and when monetization doesn't work anymore because pushing interest rates will not push bond yields down, buying, excuse me, buying bonds will not push bond yields down, that and, and then you have the loss of interest rate declines, the loss of getting money to the people who need it through quantitative easing. When that doesn't work anymore, then you are in the position now. So very classically, right here now, what you have is the federal government, which does not have the capacity to make uh, money and credit. You have them coming in and spending a lot more money, not nearly enough money. Um, the, we estimate right now that the corporate losses would be in the vicinity of, um, in the U.S., about $4 trillion. Globally, probably about $12 billion, trillion. Say that again, $4 trillion in the United States, $12 trillion globally, that's with a T? That's right. So the size, um, there'll be big losses. And those are corporations. There will also be individuals who have very big losses. And, um, and, and individuals who can't afford the shock that they're going to have. So there's a need for the government to spend more money, a lot more money. And where do how they much, get How much money? more money, Ray? Well, uh, we're going to have to. Uh, it depends on whether it's provided as loan guarantees or credits or something along those lines. I would say somewhere in the vicinity of a trillion and a half to two trillion dollars um, is, a, is a minimum. Um, and what that means, uh, where does the government get the money? Okay, who are the lenders now? You, it, everybody's almost hit. And so the, the, the way this works, the way it's worked in history, 
is that they have to get the money from the Federal Reserve. So you are in a moment in time right now. You're seeing it play out. It's played out in history. It's played out in the 1930s, in which you're now seeing we're going to spend a lot of money on these programs. That means you're going to have to sell a lot of uh, bonds. Okay, who is going to buy those bonds? Um, a lot of people are going to be broke. A lot of, uh, if, if you look at the condition of pension funds or other endowments, so where's that money going to come from? As in history, that money will have to come from the Federal Reserve. So you see it right now. When you see a big program being announced right. like uh, that program, you see the bond yields back up. Now, if the central bank does not um, then go in there and buy those bonds, the central bank at this point is in a dilemma. And uh, what should happen with interest rates and and so on? If those rates back up because the supply-demand imbalance is not good, then you're going to have the next wave of the crisis. Because interest rates rising will cause asset prices to go down more again. And they also will mean that debt squeezes will be a problem. And also credit spreads would widen. This is just mechanics. Ray, help us, so, with, help us with this. Yeah, I, think a, I think a lot of investors are trying to think about, and, and, and policymakers right now, trying to think about whether this is a, a V-type recovery or this is a U or if this is an L. And when you talk about the 1930s, uh, a, a V is not on the table, a U may not be on the table, an L might be what it looks like. Yes, I'd like to go through, I'll, I'll answer your question with an explanation of essentially the mechanics. Um, we are now at a point where uh, there will have to be um, a debt Um, a a restructuring and a monetization of that. And we're living in a different world like the 1930s, in which 1930s, 1932, you have a devaluation of the dollar. You have the printing of money. In other words, 1932, Roosevelt um, gets elected, and then we have the, um, the hitting of zero interest rates, and you have the analogous thing. Central banks came in there, and they printed money that bought financial assets, that makes the rich richer, and and it puts liquidity and it makes asset prices go up. Uh, Then, as now, then you become long. Everybody right now is leveraged long in the markets. In other words, most people uh, want are rooting for up, and and the government is rooting for up, and the way they usually get up is by creating money and credit to push things up, but they can't do that anymore in that way. So now we're dealing with a, a restructuring issue. So I want, uh, I want to emphasize um, that um, there, are, there are typically two types of investors. Um, the first is those who get excited about what's going on at the time, you know, and they kind of buy at the highs because they say, oh, that, that's great, and they extrapolate the past. And that's, that's a problem. Then we've learned over our years, over the cycle that has been our lifetime, we haven't learned what it was like in a prior lifetime. What we've learned since the post-World War II era is um, to uh, buy breaks. By the dips. Uh, because by the dips. In other words, we look at value in a normal way of saying, um, you know, now it's down and so now you'll get value investors in a sense coming in. What, uh, what history has shown us, 
that if you go back to the bigger cycles, these things that take place about 50 years when monetary policy is not all uh, effective, is that um, they that that is a dangerous policy, too. And so I think we're in a situation now with this um, with this low level, uh, with this dynamic in which fiscal policymakers are looking at monetary policymakers um, and, and they're trying to cut a deal that you're seeing literally helicopter money. In other words, sending a thousand dollars to each person is helicopter money. If you want to read about it, it's um, I wrote about it in my book, which, by the way, is free online, um, which is uh, debt crises, big debt crises. There's monetary policy three, which is that process. So that's the part of, uh, uh, of the cycle that we're going to be in. That issue means at some point there is a risk of what is money, what is a storehold of wealth. In other words, what happens? Are we moving to gold? Let, uh, what do you, what are you, this, is a very, this is very pessimistic. Um, again, I want to convey the mechanics of it at such times. Um, when you have, let's say, bond yields or, or returns that are very low, and you have, but they're high um, on, on a real basis because you have deflation, you have zero rates, but you have deflation, you have a move to cash. And most investors believe that cash is the safest place, and, and it is over the short run at that time of deflation. But when you have that move to cash, there's a necessity to produce a lot of cash and a lot of debt. So now you will enter in a time when they, the bonds that you're holding, which is a promise to receive cash, is, um, and they're, is going to be, they're going to produce lots of cash. And then we get into an environment of, is that a safe place for money? So the question that all investors have to ask themselves is where is safe? You should always, you know, basically you need to know where is safe and where is opportunity. And uh, people think now opportunity is in being long assets and, and so on. And so that's why the world is leveraged long. At the same time, where is safe? We live in a world where we think cash is safe and cash may not be safe as we're going forward. I'm not saying now. I'm, I'm saying that as we're going through this dynamic, that we're right now at this inflection point, the right. inflection point in which they have the deficits and now we get the money printing and all that. If you take that a year or two or three or maybe less down the line, there will be a question of, uh, of all those people who are holding what they believe are safe investments, which is the promise to relieve, receive cash. They may not believe right. that those returns, real returns, and that is adequate. Right. So that's a longer term. Right. Let, let me ask you just about the, 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 the immediate term uh, right now. And I'd love to get your thoughts on something uh, that we heard uh, from Pershing Square's Bill Ackman. Uh, he was on CNBC yesterday. He had a sharp warning for investors. I just want to play it and, and then maybe get your reaction. Hell is coming. Okay. And I, I felt, you know, it's really, I've never had this experience before in my life. The closest I had was the financial crisis where I'm saying, you know, things are coming, <laughs> bad stuff's coming. Um, but this was a, a feeling like I've never had, like there's a tsunami coming. 
right? The tsunami's coming in. You feel it in the air. What do you think of what Bill just had to say, Ray? Um, while I think he's right, I don't, uh, I, I don't think that's of much use because um, it can stimulate uh, panic rather than thoughtfulness. What I'm trying to do is to convey mechanics. I don't want people to panic. I want people to think. I want them to understand the mechanics of how this thing works so they navigate smartly. Ray, how are, how are you at Bridgewater thinking about this? I know that you had put out a statement earlier that you, you, that you hadn't anticipated this situation over the past several weeks and like so many others. Um, um, yeah, so it's in the performance. Uh, yeah, um, uh, we um, so uh, we're down about between, uh, depending, uh, roughly speaking, and I don't want to get into the exact thing. Somewhere in the vicinity, which fund ten to twenty percent ish kind of uh, decline, and and we um, and we missed that. We, you know, we're kicking ourselves for missing that because uh, that move because. Um, you, you know, you and I were talking when the downturn would come, we would encounter this and, and so on. Um, but what uh, um, so what happened was um, it didn't come from the usual places. It came from um, not the usual ways that downturns come. And so when this when it started to uh, when we started to get information, we dealt with the question of uh, are we going to really trade this? Uh, we have a system. We're not going to get into pandemics and so on, and that was what, what has happened. I'm not going to get into our particular positions. However, I would say that what I'm describing to you here and now is the thing that we're, uh, that, that we're following in terms of our strategy. And I will um, communicate. I, I feel a responsibility to try to uh, not give tips in the market, not um, do that, but a responsibility to thoughtfully convey how the economic machine works. Uh, I, I do that on LinkedIn if people are interested. I, um, but I want to explain the mechanics of that and then put where we are um, it right now in that position. Because if you look at history, I'm saying right now, you, all, you could say, okay, Fed, what are you going to do about that rising interest rates? Are you going to come in with and not just Fed, all central banks, uh, are you going to come in with the trillions of dollars? And are you going to work with the federal government to get it to those who otherwise will, be, will go broke? Those are businesses. But there's going to be a lot of people out there um, who, um, are, you know, this can be a social issue, a social conflict issue, too in terms of the rich and the poor and how that's how it's being treated and all those. Ray, do you, you know, support do you have, support bailouts to specific industries? Do you have views on that? In terms in terms of I, the social issue that you've been talking about for the past several years and, and the ramific political ramifications and, and others, uh, social issues that would may come of that if people see that certain industries are bailed out, we may bail out the airline industry, but I don't know if anyone's going to bail think, out uh, uh, the Vail and the ski ski industry anytime soon. I think the government is in a position in which, on, let's say, then, during the 2008 financial crisis, they could handle it more easily, and it was very difficult, but they could handle it more easily. They could go through the banks and protect the banks and protect the money market funds, and it was very controversial to protect the banks and so on. 
Now this problem is out, is beyond the banking system. So imagine protecting a bunch of companies of the sort that you're asking about. Do I protect the airline? Do I protect the ski resort? Do I protect those types of things? There will be many of those that cannot be protected, and it's going to be a politically challenging thing to say, how do I get it to them? And, and who is protected? Talk about political controversy. This is going to be a politically very, very challenging. There are abilities to do this. There are very abilities to do it. But the question is whether politics uh, will deal with this and whether central banks will coordinate well with central governments uh, in order to um, then think, which are the entities that you would not want to lose? It, just like you don't want to lose the best, you, which are the systemically important entities? Do you want to lose Boeing or do you not want to lose Boeing? Do you want to lose this one or do you not want to lose that? What are the implications? And there's a whole bunch of them. And to make those choices almost one by one is what's going to be required. Ray Dalio, it is uh, always a privilege to uh, spend time with you and to help uh our viewers through the way you're thinking about these things and the economic machine, which we've been talking about together now for almost 10 years. Um, thank you for joining us this morning. And uh, as this uh, pandemic continues, uh, hopefully it'll abate. But as it continues, I hope we have an opportunity to talk to you again soon. All the best to everyone. Thank you, Ray. Coming up on Squawk Pod, a restaurateur with operations in over a dozen states on the tough choice to put his business to sleep. The industry itself employs 15.6 million people, 10% of the U.S. workforce, not to mention probably a double that because of all the ancillary businesses. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Joe Kernan. Sorry, push on Joe. Up on him, too. The restaurant industry. That could shed millions of jobs as the coronavirus keeps people from going out to eat. Kate Rogers joins us now with more. Hey, Kate. Hi, Joe. Good morning. With more than 20 states now requiring restaurants to take out or delivery only for customers and shelter in place becoming a reality for some, the restaurant industry is already being hard hit. The National Restaurant Association projects some $225 billion in sales could be lost over the next three months, leading to between five and seven million jobs lost. The group says the restaurant industry employs some 15.6 million 
million people, so nearly half of those workers could be out of a job. Challenger Gray and Christmas estimates this number could be even higher. By their projections, bar and restaurant closures could cost or significantly impact at least 9.4 million jobs. New data from Black Box Intelligence shows why. 70% of restaurants say they're seeing traffic decline so far, with upscale, casual, and fine dining restaurants being hardest hit. Companies are also facing new worries about workers even showing up in the face of a spreading virus. Nearly a third of restaurant operators are facing staffing challenges ranging from sick employees or those who don't come in to avoid being exposed to the virus. The issue, guys, is sure to continue to grow while companies large and small lean on delivery systems that they have in place in order to keep afloat. Becky, back over to you. All right, Kate, thank you very much. Joining us right now is an entrepreneur in the restaurant industry, Cameron Mitchell, who's the CEO and founder of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. They operate 37 properties in 14 different states. And uh, Cameron, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Becky. You're in the unfortunate position of having to shut down operations rapidly. I believe on Monday you laid off about 4,000 employees. Explain Mm -hmm. what happened and why. Well, it's interesting. Two weeks ago, on March 3rd, I was in Washington, D.C. to meet with my bankers, and I expressed to them what a great start to the year we had. We're up 7% same-store sales, record profitability for the first two months of the year. This was March 3rd. Tomorrow, I believe March 19th, uh, we will be completely shut down. Uh, I laid off 4,200 people on Monday. We kept about 300. Some of our Florida restaurants were still open, and we're trying to carry out and so forth. Uh, But we've since closed our Florida restaurants, and by Friday, uh, our total of 4,500 associates, as we call them, will be down to six in the home office. Uh, We have a couple of HR people and a couple of finance people still around, but that, that is it. And so our company has been completely eviscerated in the past 17 days. How, how much money were you bringing in? How much revenue on a monthly basis before this? We're a $260 million company with about 4,500 people nationwide. We have restaurants coast to coast in L.A. to New York and, and, and throughout the country. So you have gone to Congress and, and asked for some help. I think the restaurant mm-hmm. industry overall is looking for a bailout of about $455 billion. People look at that mm-hmm. and think that's a huge number. Why don't you explain what it takes, why you are looking for that kind of money, and what it would take to get your operations back up and running? Well, great. I think I have about three points on that. One is the industry itself, as you highlighted into the segment here, is, uh, employs 15.6 million people, 10% of the U.S. workforce not to mention probably a double that because of all the ancillary businesses, farmers, grocers, or uh, delivery people, et cetera, that support our industry. Uh, secondly, uh, the charities that our industry supports across the country, which really help the most in need that we can't support going forward. So really, I think it's about 20% of the economy in the workforce in the United States that we can get back to work. And a lot of these are primary low-income workers that, uh, that need the money and need to get moving. When we think about uh, the hotel industry uh, and the airline industry, they total up to about $420 billion, and they're very important to our economy, and they need the help. But the restaurant industry is more than double that. And uh, we, I, I think that what the National Restaurant Association asked for Congress uh, in their package is reasonable. You think about it. Now, I'm not a movie operator or a barbershop operator, but those places can close down to shut the lights off and, and literally come up and open the next day. A restaurant cannot do that. Uh, we're a cash business and we, we need the money. We need uh, to onboard a frust, onboard 4,500 associates, takes a tremendous amount of time to hire them, to hire them back, 
to get the restaurants clean, to order in all the product uh, that we need to cook it from scratch, to get ready to retrain our people. Uh, It takes about a month to open a restaurant. It's not as simple as just say, hey, we're going to open on the second, and uh, so everybody come back the first, and and we'll be ready to open. It takes hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to open a restaurant uh, today from scratch. So that's what we're talking about, and that's kind of the bailout and some of the money that uh, the, the industry needs. Uh, these restaurant operators, without the help of the U.S. government, will not be able to reopen. And, and we want to get our economy started when this all passes. And I think the restaurant industry itself is a major, may, will have a major impact on getting our economy back up and running. We had uh, Senator Marco Rubio on yesterday, and his plan that he's been working on and, and hoping to get some some traction with is, is that you would get the banks to give loans to restaurants and other small businesses all over the country with the understanding that whatever amount of that loan was actually made, uh, was actually used to keep payroll on, to keep your staff employed, would be eventually forgiven by the government. Would that sort of plan help you? Well, it would help us and would certainly help our employees. There's no doubt about it. And uh, if we can do that, but, you know, uh, that'd be great. But we're, we're really, my, my primary concern, I, I appreciate what the government has done, is to help our people. Uh, you know, we've been able to keep health insurance through April for our people. and We've, you know, made our payroll uh, through this close down. But uh, the more, most important thing, and, and I want people to realize when I'm at home hunkering down with my family and our people are at home, uh, we need to know from the, the federal government that we're going to have an opportunity to reopen. You know, I built this company for in the past 26 years from scratch. I can do it again. Uh, but we need the capital to uh, not only, you know, uh, help us through this time where our restaurants are down, our rents are piling up, our bills are piling up, our debt, you know, and, and with no revenue. And then uh, the capital we need to reinvest to reopen and get up and running. Uh, we'll survive. We're a group of tough people, restaurateurs out there in this country, and we will survive. But we cannot survive uh, without getting the necessary capital we need to reopen. Hey, Cameron, uh, wanted just to understand, you know, when we do get on the other side of this and, and let's all hope mm-hmm. we get there sooner uh, rather than later. It, it's, it, it, it's hard to believe. And if you really look at the Chinese example or really anywhere else, that it's all going to come back at once, which is to say mm-hmm. that even even when you open the restaurant on day one, uh, you know, in week one, in week two, in week three, in week four, in week five, likely it looks like it's a very slow ramp. So the question is, it's not going to be, I imagine, about rehiring the entire staff on day one, as much as I would like you not know, I'd like the staff ne- never need to even be rehired because I'd want them to remain on the payrolls. But how do you think about that process and that progression? And it's a virtuous and vicious cycle as well, because, of course, the more people that you can rehire and the, therefore the more people will hopefully have a paycheck and therefore want to go to other restaurants. Oh, I totally agree with you. And, you know, it is going to take some time. And I've spent really little time on our reopening plan because I've been spending all my time primarily on our closed down plan at this time, at the point in time. But I'm sure we'll have some sort of staggered reopening uh, along the way uh, versus all at once. Uh, but as much as we as a country can kind of say, OK, uh, four weeks from now, everybody, we're going to get started. Let's go. You know, schools back in session, et cetera. You know, so I think uh, as much as we can do as a, as a government and as a, a country to start, uh, that'd be great. But we're, it is going to take a little time to ramp. There's no doubt about that. Prior to the shutdown, we were down 35 percent of sales. So uh, it's hard to operate uh, with that kind of uh, hit to your sales volume. 
So when we open back up, you know, if we open up at 50% sales or, you know, 75% sales, we're going to have to deal with that. But we'll be more prepared for that this time. Uh, but eventually, you know, I believe in the American economy. I believe in the American people. And we will get back uh, to normal here. But the question, we have no idea how long that will take. Your sales were down 35% just because people were actually heeding the warnings of staying home and, and, and social distancing before the government effectively shut everything down? Correct. All those issues with getting people to come to work, we were facing all those. And, uh, you know, like I said, now our sales are down 100% because we're, uh, I put the company to sleep officially. Um, Cameron, just talking about some of the things I've seen here in New York, um, some of the restaurants here, I know the restaurant operators have been negotiating with their um, their landlords to basically say mm -hmm. we shouldn't be paying rent during this time or at least paying greatly uh, reduced rent. Are you getting those kinds of deals, too? Because I just wonder how long you hold on to these locations before that gets yeah. into real trouble, too. Yeah, same thing. Uh, we've reached out to every single one of our landlords. We've received uh, pretty much positive response from all of them. We understand we're not expecting rent payment. We've asked for roughly four months at this point in time. We're thinking three months now, plus uh, getting reopened. But uh, we only had two of our landlords uh, say, no, uh, this is your problem. This is your issue. And I think there's a number of issues, uh, policies in multiple states and the government to kind of uh, curtail that, make sure that landlords can't evict uh, tenants along the way for non-payment of rent during this time. So. Uh, and, and deal with that. But we, we, we just can't. You know, when you have no sales, you can't pay rent. That's, that's all there is to it. The landlords who said no, were they big companies that we'd know or are they smaller operations? No. Uh, uh, one was a REIT. You don't have to name uh, names. But yeah, no, one no, was that's a REIT. Uh, one was a okay, REIT, then REIT name and names. another one was small <laughs> private owners. Uh, two, were the other, two were small private owners. Uh, uh, and the one REIT has said, we're, we'll work with you, but we're not sure what relief we're going to give you. So, uh, it, it, but most most of them all been uh, been great, and this is you know this is America. People need to lean in together and work through this. And I think our landlords understand that we're not trying to dodge rent. I've never missed a rent payment in my life, you know. Uh, I've never missed a loan payment in my life. I've never missed an interest payment in my life. But this is you know we don't have contingency plans in place for the absolute unimaginable. And like I said, 17 days ago, I thought our business was in great shape and doing great. And today, uh, it's closed. Cameron, I want to thank you for your time and uh, appreciate any updates you can give us along the way, too. Thanks, Becky. I appreciate being here. And that's Squawk Pod for today. We know it's a weird and confusing time, so thank you for listening to this podcast. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Squawk Pod is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.